I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About Religion, Philosophy, and Imagination. I love going back to those texts in the Bible and in Christianity, in mysticism, where you come to these images where the divine is described as the flame, as honey, as a spring that comes up from the darkness, as the mustard seed, as the banyan seed. Because I think and believe that in this religious imaginary of seed images, very often of seeds, the smallest of things, we find the ciphers to the kingdom, the signposts to the kingdom. Not up there in, you know, capital letters, but in the closest, most minute of singular events, we find the epiphany of the divine. Richard Kearney is a philosopher who celebrates and studies the power of imagination. He's a writer, a poet and novelist, and a teacher at University College Dublin in his native Ireland and at Boston College in the United States. Within philosophy, he's been closely associated with what some have called the religious turn, or the return of religion. In this program, he talks about the currents within contemporary thinking that have put religion back on philosophy's agenda, and he remembers a beloved teacher, Paul Ricoeur, whose philosophy of dialogue was one of his crucial starting points. When Ricard says, what's the best way to know yourself? He says, well, the shortest route from self to self is through the other. In dialogue with the other person, you come home to yourself eventually. In conversation with another writer, be it a literary writer, an artist, an historian, you travel through another world. You are deworlded as you take this detour through the imagination of the other person, the world of the other person, and you come back to yourself in some sense amplified and enriched by that journey through otherness. One of the forms of otherness through which Paul Ricoeur journeyed was religion, and Richard Carney has followed in his teacher's footsteps. In today's program, the second of a series of three on his thought, he reconstructs his journey, remembering his encounters with some of the great thinkers of the age, from Paul Ricoeur to Jacques Derrida, and reflecting on the place of imagination in religion and of religion within philosophy. The series is presented by David Cayley. Richard Carney grew up in a world of imagination. Born in the city of Cork in southern Ireland, he fed on stories, the stories his family told, the stories of the Bible, the stories of Irish and world literature. He reveled in the ancient feasts and festivals of the Christian liturgical year, and in a landscape and cityscape themselves imbued with stories. At the Benedictine Abbey School, where he boarded in County Limerick, he was introduced to philosophy and theology. By the time he got to university, an intention to study philosophy seriously had ripened. But what he wanted to philosophize about was imagination. I studied philosophy in University College Dublin for three years, and I actually did it with English, and I was always very interested in the relationship between philosophy and literature, with imagination being at the center of it, because I believe that imagination is actually prior to reason. I have a bit of a quarrel with Plato on that, who, who going back to the Republic two and a half thousand years ago, said, no, 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 reason is at the top, what he called noose. Then you have understanding underneath it. Then you have pistis, or what he called opinion, faith, belief. And then lowest of the low, 
bottom of the ladder, Aikazia, hence our word icon, uh, imagination, or also he also called it fantasia, hence our word fantasy. So I was sort of uh, challenged by Plato and Western metaphysics, which kind of carry that prejudice through for the next 2000 years. I was um, kind of provoked to say, well, what about the lowest of the low here? What about the least of these, fantasia? Is it just wayward fancy and fantasy and, you know, reverie? Or is it more than that, i.e. the very source of our culture, our religion, our politics, our society, our way of being, our self-identity? And I think I got a little bit of support uh, as I studied philosophy uh, in Dublin and then later in Paris uh, when I came across Immanuel Kant. And there was Kant in 17... 1781, I think, the Critique of Pure Reason, saying, I'm now going to set up for modernity, for modern times, the true architectonic, as he called it, the true blueprint of how we do philosophy and how we do science and how we can know what we know and know it clearly and know it for sure and know it logically and so on and rationally. And he set up to analyze this in the Critique of Pure Reason at the end of the 18th century. And he said, well, we've got two ways of knowing. We can go through the intelligible experience and the sensible experience. And the intelligible experience comes through the categories of understanding, of our rational understanding, and then our sensible experience comes through our senses and space and time. And then he said, well, we got a problem. How do we put the two together? How do we put the all that work of our rational, logical categories together with what we intuit and receive from the world through our senses? And the only faculty that he could locate that would do this work of being passive to what we receive empirically and sensibly from the world, and then active in the sense of productively imposing on that experience our categories and ideas and concepts. He said there's only one faculty that can be both passive and active, both intelligible and sensible, both part of the mind and part of the body, part of the conscious and part of the unconscious, and that's imagination. So we talked about this art hidden in the depths of nature, this blind faculty of which we are scarcely ever aware, but without which we would know nothing at all. And that was what he called the transcendental imagination. That was a huge breakthrough for me. And then I realised that he wrote a second edition of the critique six years later, where he took most of that back and he said, sorry, I made a mistake, because he realised that if he said that, he was challenging the whole Western dualist perspective, you know, that you've got the mind and the body, you've got reason and the senses, and suddenly here was Kant saying, no, there's a common root to those different stems. And that common root is this blind art, imagination. That was too radical a discovery, so he pulled back and he kind of modified his revolutionary findings in the second edition of the critique. But, you know, the genie was out of the bottle, the cat was out of the bag, use whatever metaphor you want. Pandora's box was opened and imagination was leashed upon the world, hence romanticism, German idealism, existentialism. And a basic dialogue between literature and philosophy took place. So that when you come to Dostoevsky or Tolstoy or Sartre or Camus or Gide or Thomas Mann, you've got to ask the question, are these philosophers or writers or both? And of course, for me, they were both. In Immanuel Kant, Richard Carney found an understanding of imagination, which is quite different from the common definition of the word, even today. Imagination usually means our capacity to alter or improve on a given reality. Kant was suggesting that without imagination to coordinate our perceptions, we would never be able to form an image of reality in the first place. Imagination, in this sense, 
is the very foundation of a recognizable reality. Kant's great discovery and his embarrassed retreat from it made Richard Kearney aware of the depth of the split between reason and imagination in modern Western culture. Reconciling the two became his great aim. He wanted to construct a philosophy that could recognize the primacy of imagination without falling into irrationalism or some other form of romantic excess. His first stop was McGill University in Montreal, where he was attracted by Charles Taylor, a thinker who was also trying to build a bridge between rationalism and romanticism. Charles Taylor supervised Richard Kearney's M.A. studies, but then Taylor recommended that Kearney do his doctorate in Paris with Taylor's friend Paul Ricoeur. Ricoeur, who was a Christian, was unusual at the time in recognizing religion as an acceptable topic within philosophy, and Taylor had a high regard for Ricoeur's studies of the symbolic imagination in myth, metaphor, and narrative. So Richard Kearney found himself in Paul Ricoeur's seminar at the University of Paris. It was a very lively seminar, and Ricoeur was a wonderful practitioner and mentor of dialogue. His idea was all philosophy is interpretation, or what he called hermeneutics, coming from the Greek hermenoin to interpret a message or a meaning. And all words in language have an attachment to metaphor and symbol, so we need to interpret all the time. We don't do this necessarily consciously. We do it unconsciously too, as our dreams show and our slips of the tongue and whatnot. But basically everything was interpretation and therefore dialogue because no one person had the truth. Philosophy was a conflict of interpretations and a community of interpretations. And that's the way he operated his seminars, by inviting these people in. So we worked actually in a kind of community of interpreters. And there was kind of a trust that nobody has absolute truth here, but we all come with something to the table. You know, the idea was when you went to the table, du parlez-vous, where do you speak from? Where do you come from? What's your interpretation? And then you listen and you respond and you learn. And, and very often there would be kind of an overlapping of different horizons as the conversation took place. And you'd learn from somebody else and they'd learn from you in this process of kind of multiple and mutual convertibility and exchangeability of views. Paul Ricoeur was to become Richard Kearney's great teacher. The match, as Charles Taylor had anticipated, was perfect. Ricoeur recognized the primacy of the imagination. He taught that all meaning is conveyed to us through story and symbol. But he also gave reason its place by his insistence on careful and deliberate interpretation. The symbols by which the imagination speaks in word, image, and story have multiple meanings, and none comes pre-certified as the one true and only meaning. This does not mean that all interpretations are equal, a point on which Ricoeur was emphatic, but it does argue that only a community of interpreters can find a way to reconcile rival gods, competing mythologies, and warring stories. The symbol, Ricoeur famously said, sets us talking. The way we relate to other people in time and space is through all kinds of hidden codes, the way our bodies relate, all kinds of hidden codes, the way people dress and walk and talk and are silent or, you know, move the coffee cup, step closer or step away from you. All of that is symbolically mediated. It all means something. 
and we're constantly interpreting, we're constantly engaged in the decipherment of signs. Even if those signs are the signs of body language, you may not utter one word, but you're still involved in interpretation and your imagination is already at work. And one of the extraordinary things here, of course, too, and Ricard touches on this in his book on Freud, is that psychoanalysis showed us that there isn't one part of the body that isn't symbolized. I mean, we got the obvious ones in, you know, the phallic and the umphallic and the, uh, the, 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 the genital and the anal and the oral and all those phases that, that Freud talked about that are almost, you know, stereotypical now and cliched. But, you know, uh, somebody in an analysis learns that in dream and in free association and indeed in personal life, feet, hands, arms, stomach, everything has its own symbolique, its own social and symbolic imaginary. Some of these are shared, you know, in communities and nations collectively, and some of them are individual to individual people. But everything is there to be interpreted. So the, the catchphrase of hermeneutics is, in the beginning was the word. And that doesn't mean literally or only, you know, the theological commencement of everything with the word and the word in the flesh. But everything around us, whether you're atheist or theist, is irrelevant on this issue, is already symbolically mediated. Everything in the flesh is mediated also through logos of some kind, through meaning of some kind. Paul Ricoeur held that everything we encounter, whether mental or physical, natural or social, is already endowed with its particular symbolic charge its dense weave of association, its meaning. In French, one can say that it has its imaginary, a useful word which is just beginning to be used in English. Charles Taylor, for example, called his most recent book Modern Social Imaginaries. The word implies that imagination is found not just in our heads, but in the world because the world that confronts us at any given moment is a world that has always already been imagined and shaped accordingly. The imagination is the imaginary in that it is out there. It's, it's everywhere. You know, our platonic notion, our metaphysical notion that we have in the West is that the imaginary is confined to this little box called imagination that comes up with little pictures and attaches, you know, images to words or images to ideas or images to sensations. And that's what imagination does. And that's a very kind of servile and representational notion of this little faculty that does work in a little box in our minds. But in fact, what the, the term imaginary does is to expand beyond that faculty notion of imagination to suggest, no, that there is an imaginary of the body, there's an imaginary of society, of politics, of biology, of sexuality, of dream, that everything, in a way, has its imaginary component. And if we don't understand that, we're only understanding the half of things. When Ricoeur set out analyzing myth mm. and symbol, what was he writing against? I think he was writing against the claim that there is one way of thinking. Now, that can be a scientific claim, that science is the way of thinking. So anything coming from religion, myth, literature, all of that is, is an interference. Whatever can be said, can be said clearly. 
with clear and distinct ideas, and that's it. So you can kind of trace a line running from Descartes through the rationalists up to the early Wittgenstein. So I think he was trying to modify that particular claim of a certain scientific rationalism that says there's only one way of thinking, the, all thinking is transparent and objective and neutral. Scientific rationalism was just one of the thought styles that Paul Ricoeur was trying to modify. A second important engagement was with what was called structuralism, the reigning philosophy when Richard Carney arrived in Paris at the end of the 1970s. To understand structuralism, one has to draw back a little to the years after the Second World War, when Paris became the capital of Western philosophy and existentialism was the dominant school. Out of that triumph of existentialism in the post-war, the immediate post-war years, with Sartre and Camus and Beauvoir and so on, came this other philosophy called structuralism. And that gave rise to a whole series of very popular theories, you know, Foucault announcing the death of man, the death of the subject, Levi-Strauss talking about, you know, this timeless pensée sauvage or kind of universal logic that preconditions us all as individual subjects and uh, is basically an anonymous structure. Althusser applying that to Marxism, Roland Barthes applying it to literature, you know, it's not the author that speaks, it's the text that speaks through the author, the death of the author, the birth of the reader, all this Lacan, the split subject, because it's really the unconscious that speaks through us. And the unconscious is structured like language, so that I do not say what I mean and I do not mean what I say. And all of that was a response to existentialism, which seemed to place the primacy of meaning and value on the individual. Now the structuralists were coming along and attacking the existentialists for that primacy of the human subject and subverting it and undermining it with this idea of a non-human, non-humanist system of meaning that was basically part of some kind of linguistic, unconscious network of signifiers, as they put it, of signs that sort of deployed itself irrespective of our individual human volition and will and intervention. And out of that came this search for meaning, because in a way the structuralists had taken meaning out of the world and given it over to some kind of anonymous machine. And so in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, when I arrived in Paris, there was a great sense of fervor. I remember going to the lectures of Lacan and Foucault and Lévi-Strauss and all these people, Deleuze, and there'd be thousands of people going to these lectures, thousands and thousands. But in the midst of this, there was kind of a hunger and a hankering for a return of some kind of meaning. And out of that, it seems to me, emerged a number of voices that talked about ethics and the return of the religious and the possibility of finding the divine in the human again and through the human again. And that, that was the importance for me of people like Ricoeur and Levinas, who were prepared to reintroduce some aspect of meaning between human beings or between human beings and something called the other. Uh, and very often the name given to that other was God. The use of the term the other, <coughs> I, I think, will be mysterious to those who, who don't think hmm. 
in abstract philosophical ways. Can you make sense of the use of the term the other? I think one has to kind of situate it in the debate of the time, which was that that humanism and existentialism had so glorified the human self that everything was reducible to the human self. So the question then was, how do we get out of this kind of radical subjectivism where everything in the world is kind of a production or a construction of our cognitive processes, of our consciousness, of our volition? And one response to this was, as mentioned, structuralism, which said there's no self at all. And it's not at the level of human relations that we should look for this. It's simply in some anonymous, impersonal, mechanical system of linguistic signs. And I think people felt that that wasn't enough. It didn't explain a need and a sense and a sentiment and an instinct that there's something else out there beyond the self and beyond the system. And that came to be called the other. It could manifest itself in different ways. It could be the other as um, as nature that we'd forgotten in our industrial revolution and our consumerist society. Or it could be a human other, that there's something about a human being that is not me that is radically other and that I will never be able to reduce to my own set of perceptions and expectations and presuppositions. There will always be a mystery, an enigma or whatever. It's something that transcends me. And then thirdly, that also opened up the possibility that there could be something divine and transcendent about that otherness of the other person that could open up some sense of the infinite. So I think it was out of that desire to go beyond the self and the post-self or anti-self that emerged in post-modernity that this fascination with the other came about. The term the other has most often been used in contemporary talk to refer to other races whom we oppress by exaggerating their difference, by picturing them as both exotic and menacing. So one speaks of the subject of colonialism as the other. The usage that Richard Carney has been describing is a little different. In philosophy, the other might still refer to a dreaded stranger, but it could also evoke a saving power, the otherness that overcomes our solitude and opens us to nature, community, and perhaps the divine. It was in this way that Paul Ricoeur spoke of the otherness that was smothered by structuralism's emphasis on system. Ricoeur had some affinities with structuralism. He certainly recognized that symbols and stories can take us over if we fail to acknowledge and temper their power. But he also believed that existence has, for each one of us, a personal meaning. And the way to this meaning, he said, was through the other. When Ricard says, what's the best way to know yourself? He says, well, the shortest route from self to self is through the other. In dialogue with the other person, you come home to yourself eventually. In conversation with another writer, be it a literary writer, an artist, an historian, you travel through another world. You are deworlded as you take this detour through the imagination of the other person, the world of the other person, and you come back to yourself in some sense amplified and enriched by that journey through otherness. Not as an ego, not as a moi, as he put it in French, but as a soi, that you move from myself to oneself. 
And that movement through the other from myself through the other to oneself as you return to yourself is an enrichment. That's why interpretation and imagination are important and why reason left to itself becomes tyranny if it thinks it already has the truth before it ever goes out on a journey. One of Paul Ricoeur's books, his 1992 Gifford Lectures, is called Oneself as Another. And the hospitality to the other that he preached, he also practiced. Richard Carney grew from a student to a friend and says that he was often impressed by Ricoeur's humility, generosity, and openness. Just before Ricoeur died in May of 2005, at the age of 92, Richard Carney was able to return a little of what his old teacher had given him. I met him a month before he died, and I was able to give him a copy of my last book and most recent book on him, The Owl of Minerva, as he sat there in his office. He was only kind of lucid for about one hour a day. He sat there on the couch in his office, and he was able to kind of see the cover and read the title. And uh, the title was The Owl of Minerva. And I'd taken that from the fact that whenever I used to visit him at his home, his office and study were surrounded by owls. He used to collect them. And uh, they were, I think, originally references to the Owl of Minerva in, in Hegel's famous reference, you know, that the philosopher is like the, the Owl of Minerva. Uh, he or she always takes flight at dusk when the day has run its course, you know. And um, I think Ricard took this to mean you can only philosophize when you've lived. You've got to have lived during the day before you philosophize at night. Philosophy comes after life. And in that sense, he always remained kind of a philosopher of existence, which, which I very much appreciated. But in any case, I gave him a copy of the book and he looked at the owl and um, he read the blurb at the back, which said that Ricard is one of the most enduring European philosophers. And he looked at me and he said, Wagged his finger and he said, not for very much longer. <laughs> and he had a great sense of humor like that. And that huge sense of humility and um, ability to learn from anybody. I mean, when I came to him first, I must have been, what, 21? And as far as I was concerned, I had nothing to offer and everything to learn. But immediately he would talk to me and he'd say, you know, where do you get these ideas on imagination? And I'd say, well, this and that, and I'm interested in, in the philosophy of film. And he said, ah, oh, film. Now, I, I really know very little about film. Well, tell me about film. So I, I'd just seen about two days before Saturday Night Fever, you know, John Travolta movie. And for some reason, I had this theory. I generally did. Whatever movie I saw, you know, I'd have a theory about it and the role of imagination in that theory, the embodied imagination of John Travolta dancing. I don't know what the hell I said to him. But anyway, the next thing is I meet some kind of fuddy-duddy professors at some international conference. They say, ah, Paul Ricoeur, he's so strange. I met him last week and all he was talking about during dinner was John Travolta <laughs> in Saturday Night Fever, which, of course, he'd gone straight out to see and had his own theory on it. But whatever I would come up with, he would be incredibly open to it. And when, when he visited Ireland, I remember, you know, and he was one of the world's greatest philosophers even then in the late 80s, early 90s. And we had him to the Irish Philosophical Society. Now, I hadn't warned him. This is a very casual and formal kind of group of philosophy professors who get together. And there's only about 30 of us in Ireland anyway. I was back teaching in, in Dublin in, in those days in the late 80s. It was on history and fiction, his paper. And at one point at the end of, of this plenary address, which was really a, a question and answer over a pint of Guinness or over 100 pints of Guinness, <laughs> one of the professors from Limerick came up and he said, 
he said, you know, this year now I've been teaching your book on Freud and the girls are having great difficulty with it. Would you come up and, and say a word about it? So he goes, of course, of course, of course. I said, don't say yes. You know, you've done your bit now. I'm taking it to the Aran Islands with, with your wife, Simon. And don't don't agree to give other talks. But Rico was so generous, you know, he'd never say no. So the next thing is we were in a car up to this convent where this guy was teaching uh, called the Mary Immaculata Convent in Limerick. And uh, sure enough, Ricoeur gives this little spiel on what he meant about his Freud book and so on. And um, uh, he stops and he says, any, are there any questions? So a girl stands up and she says, Professor Ricoeur, a very difficult concept that I can't get my head around at all is the Oedipal complex. Could you explain the Oedipal complex? So he says, oh, very good question, yes. So he, he, he says, the Oedipal complex is when the little boy, for example, wants to kill his father and coucher avec sa mère. So he turns to me and he says, Richard, come on, how do you say coucher avec sa mère in English? So I translated into English, but Ricard didn't speak very colloquial English and I translated into extremely colloquial English, at which point the nuns gathered up all the schoolgirls and vacated the hall. So Ricard says to me, how did you translate coucher avec sa mère? So I said, well, it was a variation on sleep with his mother. <laughs> in any case, he, he was fascinated by that too, you know, that an entire auditorium could be vacated <laughs> in a matter of minutes. But that was Ricoeur. He was uh, generous to a fault. It was Ricoeur's generosity and his humility, Richard Carney thinks, that kept him from ever achieving the celebrity enjoyed by some of his more flamboyant and combative contemporaries. Ricoeur had little taste for polemics and intellectual posturing, and his thought is not easily reduced to a catchphrase or a label. But in recent years, Richard Carney says, Ricoeur is beginning to be estimated at his true worth. There's a huge renewal of Ricoeur interest studies and so on in the last 10 years. One of the main reasons being that he was slightly ostracized or marginalized because he was open to dialogue with the psychoanalysts, the structuralists, the analytic philosophers, the theologians, the literary critics, and that interdisciplinary generosity and hospitality meant for some that he was not, as it were, occupying his own terrain. He was in too much conversation and dialogue. That was one reason. I would say another reason was his openness to religion. There was kind of an intellectual prejudice that if you talked about God or religion or spirituality, you were already off the rigorous track of serious philosophy. So Ricard's openness to uh, a conversation with religion and his willingness to acknowledge his own Christian confessional commitment and conviction was such that it made him very unfaddish and unpopular during a 50-year period, I would say. Very respected as a scholar, but the originality of his thought was not fully appreciated. But, you know, things were changing, I would say. Already in the last few years of his life, things were changing. He gave a talk, I think, six years ago in Paris. There was room for 2,000 people. It was on forgiveness. And I think something like 20,000 people turned up. In other words, the kind of fuss made for people like Foucault and, and Althusser and Barthes and so on in the 60s and 70s was made eventually about people like Ricoeur and Levinas. At the end, the people who did 
admit that there can be some kind of philosophy of religion or even religious philosophy of sorts. So I think there was a, a religious turn and return in continental thought. And I think Ricoeur was very much part of that. He never gave up on that connection between philosophy and religion. He never reduced religion to philosophy or never reduced re uh, philosophy to religion. But there was that very robust and fecund creative relationship between the two. And that, as I say, put him out of the loop for 40, 50 years, but at the end brought him very much back into the loop and indeed at the head of the loop. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio. Today, Richard Carney is talking about religion, philosophy, and imagination with David Cayley. When Richard Carney first arrived in Paris, as he recalled earlier, he was welcomed into the lively and ecumenical atmosphere of Paul Ricoeur's seminar. It was a gathering that brought together many of the thinkers who would later be associated with what Carney calls the religious turn in European philosophy. One who had become particularly important to Richard Carney was Emmanuel Levinas. Levinas, who died in 1995, was a Lithuanian-born Jew steeped in his youth in the German philosophy of Edmund Husserl and Martin Heidegger, but also shaped fundamentally by the Holocaust, in which much of his extended family died. He was a professor at the Sorbonne when Richard Carney met him, and he soon became one of Carney's thesis advisors. Levinas became important for me primarily because I was very interested in philosophy, very interested in religion, the God question, but didn't know how to bring the two together. And at the time that I came to France, Levinas had published this book called Totality and Infinity, where he talked about the the face of the other and the ethical summons in the face of the other which says do not kill come to my help give me food to eat give me water to drink come to my aid Levinas says that is God that's the trace of God in the face of the other and this to me was was very um, liberating because what basically Levinas was saying is that you can have a, a political commitment to the poor and the destitute, and recognize in and through those commitments the divine. In other words, you do not serve or love or search the divine in competition with the human, but in and through the human. And that to me is a very incarnational message, and I was getting it not from a Christian at this point, but from a Jew. And a Jew who told me when I asked him, what do you think of when you think of the face of the other? He said, Christ. And I said, but you're a Jew. And he said, yes. Christ is the suffering Jew par excellence. For us Jews too, you know. <laughs> He's one of us kind of thing. And he said it in a wonderfully, you know, ecumenical way, obviously. But I found that very liberating because at that time it was not really kosher or legitimate for Christian philosophers to talk about God. But it was possible for Jewish philosophers. I'm talking now about the European, French, continental scene. Uh, maybe because of you know the Second World War, um, they had a right to talk about God if they wanted to in philosophy and issues of forgiveness and issues of justice and spirituality and so on. 
So whether it was Levinas or Rosenzweig or Martin Buber, there you were allowed to, as it were, discover or rediscover the religious within a philosophical discussion, not yet within Christianity. That would take another 20 years or so. Through his dialogue with Emmanuel Levinas, Richard Carney learned to think more clearly about the messianic element in Christianity. The belief that Jesus is the Messiah can easily lead Christians to think that they have already heard God's last word and already taken full possession of the kingdom. But in conversation with Levinas and Judaism, Richard Carney began to understand how to recover some of Christianity's lost modesty and restore the sense of a kingdom always still to come. I was talking to him and I asked him about the kingdom because I was very interested in the idea of eschatology and the kingdom and so on. I said, given your philosophy of endless deferring of God, you know, into this messianic future, God is always the one still to come. What about the kingdom? Does the kingdom ever come? And he said, the kingdom can only ever come when we renounce the kingdom. And I found that very intriguing and thought about it for a long time that it's only when we renounce the kingdom that the kingdom can come. As long as we're imposing our projection of what the kingdom is on others, we're not listening to the other. We're not receiving the gift and the grace of the other. So the kingdom can only come when we renounce it. Just as, and, and it leads on to it, his theory of salvation. Salvation, when you pray for salvation, you pray for the salvation of the other person. You never pray for your own salvation. Because the salvation of the other comes at the expense of your, of your salvation. You put the other first. Now, of course, I like to add, but then, of course, the other will pray for you. So <laughs> you can't save yourself, but the other can save you. The other cannot save him or herself, but you can save the other. In his conversation with Emmanuel Levinas, Richard Carney found a sense of the divine as always out of reach, always on the side of the other, always still to come, a sense he thought Christians needed to recover. He found a similar emphasis on the Messianic in the work of another Jewish thinker with whom he was also to have a sustained conversation, Jacques Derrida. Derrida, who died in 2005, had also been a student years before of Paul Ricoeur's, and it was through Ricoeur that he and Carney met. Derrida, in his late writings, meditated extensively on religious questions. What Carney found striking, but also frustrating in Derrida's work, was Derrida's emphasis on the impossibility of God. By the impossible, Derrida means that <clears throat> the divine is always messianic. It's always to come, but it never comes. It is always without a name, without an image, without an instantiation, if you like. So it's always deferred. It's always withheld. And I go along with that up to a point, but I, I see it as only one part of the story, that God is impossible. God will always be impossible. And we will always desire the divine because we can only desire the impossible. If it's possible, then we can realize it and in, in his view, and therefore we have it. So what we desire is the insatiability of our desire, which is for the impossible. Now, my view about that is that's too hard. That's like wandering in the desert. We need every so often to drink water. We need the impossible to become possible. And my argument was that's what we find, not only in Judaism, 
but also looking at Western religion in Christianity, when the angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to have a child, and she says, no, it's impossible. Then the angel says, do not be afraid. What is impossible for humans is possible to God. Now, that conversion of the impossible into the possible is something for me that's a divine gift and a divine grace, but it happens. And therefore, we can have epiphanies and we can have actions where the divine traverses the flesh and takes on a name, albeit a provisional one, and takes on a place and takes on a human face and takes on a habitation and takes on a narrative. And that conversion and reversibility of impossibility into possibility is crucial for me. Richard Carney's dialogue with Jacques Derrida, as with Emmanuel Levinas, helped him to find a balance in his own thought. He appreciated the delicacy with which both thinkers approached the question of God, and their courage in denying themselves, as post-Holocaust Jews, any easy or premature consolation. He welcomed the corrective they offered to the Jesus-has-bought-me-a-home-in-heaven style of Christian complacency. But in the end, Carney concluded that both Levinas and Derrida, in their admittedly very different ways, took an approach that was, as he just said, too hard, too arid, too one-sided. The unknown other might offer a respite from the tyrannies of the self and the system, but in the end, otherness had to be something more than a luminous and awe-inspiring blank in which God was always about to appear, but never did. It's a point that Richard Carney argued with Jacques Derrida at a conference they both attended. On one occasion, I was delivering a critique where I said, you know, sometimes when I read Jacques Derrida and this other, other, that's so other, you don't even know who, who or what it is, um, how do we know if there's a knock at the door and we open it and are asked to be hospitable towards the other, whether this other is the Messiah bringing justice and peace or a psychopathic serial killer come to kill one's family. So that was my critique. And I think in mentioning, you know, psychopathic uh, serial killers, I may have said something about Charlie Manson to kind of put a face on the other. But anyway, at this point, the organizer of the conference, who shall remain nameless, jumped to the podium, takes the microphone and says, I am so annoyed with Richard Carney for coming here and criticizing Jacques Derrida and comparing Jacques Derrida's other to Charlie Manson, you know, the, the killer from California. And I was there feeling extremely rebuked and corrected and chastened and chastised. When Derrida came along and ask could he borrow the microphone he says no 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 you know this was when half the audience were about to lynch me you know for blasphemy and irreverence and he took the, the microphone he says no 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 Richard Carney's problems with my thought are my own problems with my thought so not only did he save me my my life he saved me my face and he he was always generous like that I found very very open to to criticism I just think sometimes he didn't give himself enough creature comfort, as Jared Manley Hopkins calls it. We all need creature comfort and we need a name to pray to and a story to tell and to fit into when we talk about our relationship to the divine. And Derrida deprived himself of that. And um, I just wonder if it had to be that hard for him and that inconsolable and that impossible. Even at his funeral, you know, five months ago in, in Paris, there was no music played, no poetry, 
it was very chaste. We did a little service for him here and I don't think he would have minded. I think he'd have smiled in Andover where this uh, wonderful theologian, Valerie Dixon, I think is her name. She rang me up and she said, I know you knew Derry Dad. Come and tell us a few stories about him and I'd like to do a service. And of course, I arrived down and she's Southern Baptist deconstructionist, you know, and she just got to have them all singing. You know, there was a Baptist choir singing to Derry Dad. <laughs> And I think part of Derrida would have loved that. But, you know, he deprived himself of that uh, messianism because, as he put it, I rightly pass for an atheist. And my atheism is a way of keeping my desire for God alive. And he made very interesting remarks along those lines in a little book called Save the Name, that you save the name by not naming the name. And he said the mystics very often were accused of being atheists, Silesius and Meister Eckhart, because they talked about a God beyond God. And a religion beyond religion. And and he definitely had an openness to that. What theologians would call the um, apophatic way, you know, the way of not speaking about God, not naming God, not imagining God. But to me, that's too impossible. It's too hard for, for human beings. We need the icons and the stories and the parables, even though they are only signs. As St. John says at the end of John's Gospel, you know, these are just signs and stories. And if I was to tell everything that could be told, and give all the stories about Jesus, you know, there are not an, there's not enough paper to contain all the books that could ever be written, which is, which is a wonderful way of saying it's an invitation to an endless hermeneutics, an endless series of retellings and testimonies and interpretations and songs and liturgies and readings and rereadings and imaginings. That's where I sort of part company with Derrida, traveling with him along parallel lines a lot of the time. What Richard Carney finally rejected in Jacques Derrida's thought was its asceticism, its lack, as he says, of creature comfort. Religion, for Carney, requires embodiment in places and names, songs and stories. It cannot be only waiting, withholding, deferral. We never have God. The metaphors with which we reach for God must remain provisional and never harden into fact. But still, he says, we need pictures. He thinks, for example, that the idea of otherness is beautifully pictured in old images of the Trinity. The Trinity is the Christian concept of God as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It was sometimes imagined in the first centuries of Christianity as a dance, a perichoresis, Perichoresis in Greek means peri as in periscope, you know, or periphery, around. So this is a picture of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, moving around. And you've got the empty space in the middle, which was called the Chora. And the three persons circulate around this empty space, out of which they also emerge. The impossible can become possible. But of course, it can only become possible by giving space to the other. And in the perichoresis, each person of the Trinity cedes their place to the other. They'd say, no, no, you sit there, after you, and they move forward. And then the second person of the Trinity says, no, no, I won't sit here, I'm giving it to the third person, and the third person is back to the first. So it's always giving up your place and moving forward into the place left for you by the other. So when perichoresis was translated as this dance around, and I like the idea of the dance too, you know, it's something joyous in the dance something rhythmical, something lyrical. There's music in a dance. There's the body in a dance. It has all those positive connotations of the dance around. 
translated into Latin, it becomes circum incessio. And circum is around, as in circumference, and cessio is from cedo, to seed, to, as in to concede, to give to the other. So you're wandering around in this concessionary or circumcessionary movement where you always give the space to the other. So you move into your space because the other has allowed you their space. You leave your own space and find another space which the other has gifted to you. So everything is a gift and everything is a grace. And I always see this space in the middle as the space for the Kora, the womb, which is the womb of Mary, which is the womb of Sarah, which is the womb of the, the Shulamite woman in the Song of Songs, which receives the divine into itself. It's like the Sabbath. It's the empty day, the empty day of creation that hasn't yet been filled, fulfilled, completed. And that's our task, to turn the Kora of the empty space, the womb, that's what it means in Greek, the Kora, the receptacle, the heart, into the kingdom. And that's where the divine and the human will, you know, this is all metaphor, this is all imagination, but that's what the church fathers were doing. That's what theology and metaphysics is. It's all metaphor. It's only when we think of it as a concept and then kill people if they don't get it right, you know. And of course, the, the idea of the, the perichoresis has been lost to us, but it needs to be retrieved because in that, you see, there is still movement. There is still dynamism. There is still a dance. That The dance never comes to an end and there is still desire because the divine still desires the human and the human still desires the divine. The Song of Songs is still being sung in the perichoresis in the kingdom when it comes. You have a new heaven and a new earth, but that doesn't mean that God and humanity become one. It means that they conjoin in a dance. And, you know, I find these images very beautiful and very liberating. In his respect for the liberating power of images, Richard Carney aligns himself finally with his old teacher, Paul Ricoeur. Ricoeur believed that poetic images can open new worlds. The symbols of the imagination should not be taken literally, as in fundamentalism, or followed recklessly, as in the more credulous manifestations of the New Age. But the creative imagination, properly interpreted, can give the divine a local habitation and a name. We encounter God, Richard Carney says in conclusion, not just as an endlessly deferred hope, but as a living presence. I think what we need to do is not just see the divine in an ethics of, of suffering, but also in a poetics of the beautiful. And that's sometimes where I become a bit impatient with Levinas or Derrida, where it's all the impossible, the dark, that becomes the privileged way to the divine. That's a very privileged way, but it's not the only way. There is also the celebration of the epiphany of the beautiful in the everyday moment. And, and you know, Joyce and... Hopkins, they knew that, you know, glory be to God for dappled things. What's God? A cry in the street, says Joyce. And then he gives it to Molly Bloom, you know, as she's wandering through her fantasies, erotic fantasies at night. She speaks the divine and sings this kiss of divine human love, which will be the end of hatred, which will mean that her husband, Leopold Bloom, will no longer be spat upon as a Jew in Dublin, which means that um, the despise of the world that Molly remembers will, will find a place again at the banquet. Um, but that's through a work of epiphany which sees the beautiful in the everyday. And I think that the divine works both through the ugly and the beautiful. 
through the least of these and the greatest forms of suffering and, and extremity of misery and objection and, and dispossession, but also in the wine cellar and the honey and the mustard seed and the sharing of bread and wine. That's what we're invited to. You know, it's not going to be a cheerless, breadless, wineless symposium or banquet, the kingdom. It's a place where people dance while not forgetting the gap and the memory of suffering. On Ideas, you've listened to part two of The God Who May Be, a conversation with philosopher Richard Carney. Our series concludes next week at this time when Richard Carney will talk about how stories set the terms by which individuals and nations live. The program was produced and presented by David Cayley with the assistance of Richard Handler. Our thanks to Nathan Lowen of McGill University for the introduction to Richard Carney. Technical production by Dave Field. Associate producer, Liz Nage. Audio copies of the series on cassette or CD are available for $34, taxes and shipping included. A printed transcript is $19. To order, you can call 416-205-7367. Or write to us at Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Our email address is ideas at cbc.ca. If you want to find out what's coming up on Ideas, you can sign up for our weekly online newsletter. Just go to our website at cbc.ca slash ideas and follow the links to weekly newsletter. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Please stay tuned now to CBC Radio 1 and to Sirius Satellite Radio for the hourly news. Thank you.